If you will, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 25. So we're in this series, we're taking a close look at what the Bible says about hell. The last two weeks, we've looked at two important questions. Um, Does everyone go to heaven? And does hell exist? As we've addressed these two questions the last couple weeks, uh, it's not questions we've wanted to really address because who wants to really admit to ourselves that, that hell exists and that not everyone goes to heaven? Because, you know, let's face it, more than likely, we know someone, whether it's a family member or a friend, that has rejected Jesus in their life. And having to face the consequences in our own hearts to deal with that is a struggle. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and tell you that you know, to get over it or something, because it's, it's not that type of thing. It's really a hard thing to get comfortable with, and I get it. But we can't just not address it, can we? By not addressing it, does it make it any less truth? No. So we're addressing the topic of hell. And I know today's message is one that you guys have been waiting to talk about for a long time now. I'm sure all of you woke up this morning super pumped and excited to talk about today's topic, to talk about what the Bible teaches on the matter of when someone dies, if they go to hell... Do they go to a hell where they find themselves in eternal punishment? Or do they find themselves to be annihilated or cease to exist? Those are two of the biggest debated topics that we find on the issue of hell. Two opposing viewpoints. But before we get there, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of what we're talking about. I want to make sure that we don't take this just simply as a matter of thinking that that if we figure out and we figured out the duration of hell and we address this topic of eternal punishment or being annihilated and ceasing to exist, if we just leave here and know the duration of what we think the duration of hell is, and we don't leave unchanged, we've missed the point. The purpose of these messages is to realize that these are real-life implications. And we're talking about real-life destinies of people that we know and that we love. That's why it's so important, I believe, to address hell in churches today. Because we're not just simply talking about loved ones. We're not just simply talking about people that we may pass, but we may never know. But we're talking about their destinies. We're talking about eternity. Not just the glimpse of life that we have on earth today. 
with that in mind, let's look at some of the basic beliefs of these two opposing viewpoints. The first viewpoint is the classic view. Um, It's called the classic view because historically, this has been the view that has been believed in since the beginning of time, since early Jewish believers came on the face of the earth. This has been the most widely accepted belief. And it's the view that people, in this view, people believe that when someone goes to hell, they're there and they will be eternally punished for their life of rejecting Jesus on earth. And that they will spend the rest of eternity suffering in hell. While those who have chosen to follow Christ and accepted them in their lives will go and they will spend eternity in heaven. And then there's the annihilationist view. On this side of the debate are those who believe that people who go to hell are those who have rejected Jesus. Then they're sent to hell, but they're destroyed. And they no longer cease to exist. Eternity is no more for them because they are not alive. They're not anything. They're gone. I don't know how to explain not existing any better than they don't exist. However, the annihilationist view does agree with the classic viewpoint on the stance that those who go to heaven will spend eternity in heaven. So the annihilationist viewpoint is those who go to heaven will spend eternity in heaven, but those who go to hell will just be destroyed and cease to exist. Therefore, there is no eternity for those people. For me to say that we're going to address every angle of this topic would be a gross understatement because there's no possible way. So what I want to do and my goal is to really start you on your own discovery. I want you to to be able to begin to, to process these things, to learn more for yourselves of, of what the Bible teaches So we look in this, the passage of Matthew 25, and we'll start in verse 31. If you were here with us last week, you may remember that we looked at the first half of, of this uh, chapter 25, and we looked at the parable of the ten virgins, and where Jesus tells the parable of these ten virgins, five of them were prepared and five of them were not prepared. So as we continue looking at the end of this chapter, we'll see that there's this this story that's developing within this chapter where Jesus is literally defining where the obedient will go and where the disobedient will go, those who have chosen to follow Christ and those who have rejected Christ. And so in chapter 25, starting in verse 31, It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and all the angels with him. He will sit in his, on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you. Whatever you did not do for me, or whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In this passage, Jesus speaks of the final judgment that will take place at his second coming. And he separates the groups, he separates the people into two groups. The ones on the right, the sheep, or the the believers in Jesus. And those on the left would be the goats, or the, the unbelievers. And he divides them into these two camp. Two camps, and Jesus decided who would go into what camp based on what they had done with their lives. And then, as he's divided them into their groups, then he proclaims the verdict on their lives. In verse 34, he says to the sheep, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, and you are who you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Since the very beginning, those who have followed Jesus have prepared a place for you. The kingdom of heaven, God has prepared a place for us. Those who follow Christ. Then he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So just as much as there is a place prepared for us 
for those who follow Christ, there's also a place prepared for those who have rejected Christ. But here's the important verse that I want us to look at today. It says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We find in these, in these passages of scriptures, we see another instance where Jesus is clearly talking about two places of eternity. One for those who follow Christ and one for those who reject Christ. But I want us to focus on this last verse because this last verse is one of the key verses that is debated between the classic viewpoint of eternal punishment and the annihilationist viewpoint. Because of the, this word, these two words, these two phrases, if you will, the first, you know, the first one is found in verse 41, eternal fire, and in verse 46, eternal punishment. By reading these two phrases, just simply looking at them, it seems like Jesus is inferring that Hell is a never-ending thing. But I don't want us to just jump to conclusions. I don't want us to just look at the text in the language that's written in for us. But let's go back to the original language that it was written in. Let's look at some of the key words, specifically these words. And let's look at how they would have been understood in those times. Because we have to remember that the original Bible was written in Greek. And so to understand the New Testament part of the Bible was originally written in Greek. So to understand, we have to go back and see how the people then would have understood what the authors were saying. For instance, some people who say that hell won't last forever argue that the Greek words translated eternal punishment or Ionios, Colossus, do not mean that the punishment is never-ending. They believe that instead that Onios means a period of time and that Colossus is a term from horticulture that means pruning or trimming. And so the annihilationist viewpoint is that Jesus is referring to hell as a period of pruning or trimming. So it's a period of time where people will have a brief chance to be pruned. You will have a brief chance to correct your mistake. So we rejected Jesus on earth so when we go to hell, we'll get a brief chance before we're destroyed to choose to follow Christ again. I have a hard time, as you can imagine, going with this viewpoint for a couple of reasons. The first one is that Colossus is only used three other times in the New Testament. It is also used in Jewish literature. I'm sorry, it's only used three times in the New Testament. And all three passages clearly use the term to reference punishment. 
not pruning, not trimming, but punishment. It is also used in Jewish literature around the time of the New Testament in the same way. Jesus' Jewish audience would have heard Jesus using Colossus as punishment, not correction, when he said Colossus. So clearly, if he used the word Colossus, and it was only used three other times that's recorded in the New Testament, and in Jewish literature, it was also used in the same way that Jesus used it, his audience would have heard it as punishment, not correction. The second thing is that it's used in the same place as the everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels in verse 41. So as we saw in verse 41, when Jesus addresses the goats, he says, Depart from me, those who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If this is where the unbelievers are going to be cast... If one thinks that unbelievers will un undergo a time of correction to be saved in that place, one must also say the same thing for the devil and his angels. So if we're going to say that unbelievers are going to go to hell and have a second chance to be saved, we're also saying that the devil and his angels have that same opportunity. Are we willing to say that? This would also be a huge stretch for us to say that, especially in light of Revelation chapters 19 and 20, where it says that the devil and his angels will be tormented forever and ever. I'm pretty sure forever and ever is translated forever and ever. Um, that means no end. Um, that means no second chances. The annihilationists believe that the use of eternal is not referring to forever. Annihilationists teach that the punishment of the wicked is an everlasting inconsequence not duration. So the punishment that they would face is in consequence, not duration. However, it says in Daniel 12, 2, the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So if being annihilated is the fate of those who go to hell, and if a person is annihilated, they cease to exist, how would they also experience shame and everlasting contempt if you don't exist? As I was talking to Jennifer and I was preparing for this week, one of the things that I was blown away by was the, the lack of something never coming up in any of the texts to debate this issue of 
this annihilationist issue. And as I was thinking, it was like, is hell really a punishment if you go to hell and are destroyed and no longer exist? Is it really a punishment? Because if you no longer exist, you no longer feel pain, you no longer suffer. If you don't exist, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't care or ever know, for that matter, what you missed out on. Let me help you grasp this concept a little easier for you. I tell Jennifer all the time, when I die, bury me in the cheapest box you can find. Because I won't care. I don't need to be in something fancy and look all pretty and shiny. I would rather the people carrying me not have to break their backs to do it. So just bury me in the cheapest thing. Because when I die, am I going to care? Why won't I care? Because I'm dead. Okay, you following me so far? Better yet, just the other day, I told Jennifer, I said, here's what I want you to do. When I die, I want you to go out and I want you to get yourself a brand new refrigerator. (laughs) And then I want you to bury me in the box. Consider it my gift to you. Because I won't care. I won't be here. So how can me going to hell and my punishment being being destroyed and I no longer exist, how is that a punishment? If that's the case, send me to hell because I won't care. I don't want to go to hell. I'm just illustrating the point here. (laughs) Take that back, Jesus. Don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I pull a mulligan on that one. But looking at these questions, looking at a question as simple as this, what is the right answer? What is the answer to the question? Are the people who are cast into hell put there for eternal punishment or are they annihilated? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what I believe. I think you already know what I believe. But this is also just me giving you one portion out of one text in the Bible. There are many other texts, especially in the New Testament, that address this very thing. But see, I want you to figure it out for yourself. I want you to to look in the Bible. I want you to take seriously the issue of what is hell. I want you to come to your own conclusions. But I will say this. We are bound by the words of the Creator the one who will do what is right. 
the one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right. He's never asked us that. He has only asked us to embrace his word and to bow the knee and to tremble at his word. Isaiah says in 66.2 that we should tremble at the word of God. You see, we should love God and we should seek to serve God with our lives. But at the same time, we should fear God. As Jesus said, don't fear the person who can simply kill the body. Fear the person who has the power to kill both body and soul. And God is the only person who has that power. So at the same time, we should fear God. We should tremble in the fact that he has such a power over us as his created beings. Don't get so lost in deciphering all the answers that you forget to tremble. Don't get so lost. We can get caught up a lot in the answers and not being able to understand what the word is saying. Sometimes the best answer is to trust him. To trust that the God who created us, the God who created everything, knows what he's doing. the best part about it is that we don't have to worry about God being on the other end of the phone when we call tech services. And we don't understand a word they're saying, and we're pretty confident they don't understand a word they're saying. God knows. God knows what he has planned. If he prepared a place for those who follow him and a place for those who rejected him from the very beginning of creation, I'm pretty sure he knows what to do with us. I think the better question is, what are we going to do with our lives? What are we going to do with the lives that we have? Because to be quite honest, there's two options, right? We can either follow Christ and honor him with our lives and, and seek to, to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. Or we can reject him. And spend eternity in hell. The option's not mine for you. It's up to you. You're the only one in control of who you are. Just remember to tremble when you're trying to figure out who you are.